This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about the sagebrush ecosystems that are found across Utah and the greater Intermountain West. We cover the historic distribution of these ecosystems, the current challenges they are facing, and how sagebrush ecosystems will look into the future. My name's uh, Adam Mayhood. I am a postdoc at the USDA ARS, which is the Agricultural Research Service. I used to work for Earth Lab at CU Boulder, and I'm still kind of loosely affiliated with them. So I was wondering if you could kind of paint us a picture of, of sagebrush ecosystems, where they're found, give us some sensory cues of, of what they look like, smell like, uh, kind of maybe where they were historically in the Western U.S. Yeah, so sagebrush is actually a, is a whole biome, and it's the largest biome in the Western U.S. So there's more sagebrush than there is forests. You know, a lot of people think of the Western U.S. as like this mountain and forest kind of place, but it's actually more of a, a gently sloping sagebrush desert kind of a place. There's a lot of different kinds, but the most variety, I guess I should say, is the, is the Wyoming big sagebrush, and those grow in upland areas, and they're kind of like really good at tolerating drought. You know, once they reach a certain size, they can kind of just live forever. <laughs> As long as they get some water, like every 10 years or so, it's kind of, they're, they're, they're pretty good at opportunistically grabbing the water when it comes. Sagebrush ecosystems are really widespread. Often you'll hear people refer to it as the sagebrush sea. If you drive a class across certain parts of Nevada, it'll just, it's just like seemingly endless. Yeah, and it's really gorgeous. If you go there during the, the, the times that they're tolerating drought, they, it kind of looks like they're all dead and there's not really much going on. But if, if you go during kind of the wet portion of the spring, like March, April, May, they'll just be like really lush. There's tons of plant and animal biodiversity, intact sagebrush systems. So you go there and it's just like, there's so much smell going on. The sagebrush smell just like is really, it's like you can almost touch it. It's so thick. And then all the various plants like you know, there's a lot of lupins that grow in there. So you get that like honey smell from the lupins and the, the sagebrush smell from the sagebrush. And it's just like, it's a wonderful sensory experience. And another great thing that I like about it, which anybody who's been a biological science technician can attest to this, but there are no cacti really. And that's very nice. There's not a really a lot of thorns. It's a very friendly place to walk around. I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about a, how, how sagebrush kind of hangs around. You know, you, you mentioned that it's a really drought tolerant species. What, what's it doing? How, how is it able to withstand these kinds of places? And then also paint us a picture of its kind of larger evolutionary landscape relationship with things like fire, things like drought, thing, you know, all of these big factors that kind of have shaped the West uh, maybe pre, pre-settler yeah, so, so sagebrush pre-colonialism had a very infrequent fire regime. It's kind of hard to do fire history studies on because you can kind of do tree rings with sagebrush, but it's not as straightforward as having like a 500-year-old giant tree or something. So, But people have managed to do it, and you typically had a 
you know, once every two to 400 years kind of a fire regime. And so you can imagine like these disconnected shrubs with like little bunch grasses in between and then a lot of biological soil crusts covering the bare ground. Lightning strikes a sagebrush and then like a couple bushes burn and then it kind of peters out. I feel like that's the best idea we have so far of what the fire regime used to be there. In a really wet year, things can get pretty lush out there. So then, you know, maybe once every five, 10 years, you get a lot of growth and then you get some good lightning and then you might get some larger fires every so often. When spring comes along, it, it has actually two types of leaves. So there's the big three-lobed tridentata leaf, and then it has these smaller leaves that pop out when there's moisture. And so it has these kind of perennial leaves and it has deciduous leaves. So it has a lot of different strategies to, to capture moisture when it becomes available. And it also just has like really deep roots. And that's pretty common for like many desert plants. And so that's another way that it kind of survives long periods of drought is that it's tapping into the, like the deep water sources. And so, you know, these kind of expansive biome was out there covering a lot of ground, hanging out, withstanding, withstanding drought and kind of being a, a source of biodiversity. Talk to me about how things started to change, um, you know, with the introduction of other plants and, you know, westward expansion. What, what was the story of, of these ecosystems? Yeah, so in probably the early to mid 1800s, people's white people started coming across the across the western US. And it was kind of like this unchecked, unmanaged uh, situation where people just grazed as many cattle as they could. That's kind of the, the big story is just unregulated grazing for quite a long time. With that also came the, the spread of a lot of invasive plants, but in particular cheatgrass and uh, and a bunch of annual forbs that kind of grow with it. Yeah, can you can you briefly explain to me how invasion works? So a new plant gets brought in. In the case of sagebrush ecosystems, does there need to be some kind of disturbance for that invasive plant to to get a foothold, or is it just so able to take advantage of some? some empty component of the system that it's able to take over. What does that relationship look like? I think it's it's definitely very much helped by the, the breaking up of the crust. There's been peer-reviewed research on just like the relationship between like biological soil crust and cheatgrass to germination. But I mean, the long and short of it is, is that the cheatgrass and many other invasive plants have kind of adapted to follow humans around and like what humans do is like break up the soil and trample it and then have a bunch of seeds stuck to our shoes. And then those seeds are adapted to that loose, broken up soil. And then, and it's the same thing with cattle. Cheatgrass has a particular shape that just lends itself really well to sticking in your shoes and then sticking on like the lower legs of, of cattle, <laughs> I think. And so there's just that combination of trampling and then cheatgrass just does really good in trampled soil. So interesting. Do you have a sense 
of how, you know, we'll, we'll call something intact as in when we can say intact is kind of when there's most of the components of a, of a you know, historic, yeah. a historic sagebrush ecosystem. Do you have a sense of how much intact sagebrush versus like, you know, heavily invaded sagebrush there is like what proportion of, of each? It's about, you know, at most like half is still remaining of what was there a couple hundred years ago, or at least half of it's heavily degraded by either being invaded by cheatgrass and burning and turning into a field of cheatgrass or just the various other use land cover change forces that are happening in the West, be it like agriculture or mining or whatever. It's kind of an indicator ecosystem, basically, of the forces of global change. It's probably the most imperiled ecosystem in the United States because it's just generally dryland ecosystems in general are just like a little bit more vulnerable to the forces of global change, be it land use, land cover change or, or changing climate. It's kind of an indicator of what's happening in other ecosystems or like what's going to happen in other ecosystems. So like the next level up from thing like sagebrush is the dry mix conifer forests like ponderosa pine. And so people have been looking at like how ponderosa pine forests, for example, are recovering after fire you know, in the recent past. And mostly what people are finding is that the the climate is no longer suitable for ponderosa pine seedlings. There's just a lot of lot of regeneration failures in that ecosystem. And it's just kind of working its way up in elevation. Yeah, let's let's talk about that fire a little bit. And so when these areas change, when this invasion comes in and really changes the makeup of sage brush ecosystems what what else changes tell me about the kind of knock-on effects you're alluding to fire i'd love to hear more about that this whole sagebrush cheatgrass thing is a it's kind of a a classic example of changes in ecosystem structure leading to changes in ecosystem function so the cheatgrass invades a sagebrush ecosystem and kind of fills in all the gaps and so you'll you'll see these pictures of sagebrush shrubs and then there's just like solid layer of cheatgrass in between them all and then once they burn the cheatgrass seeds actually have fire induced germination cues and so what that means is that if you take a cheatgrass seed and heat it up a little bit maybe and like dump some smoke on it that'll increase its chances of germination after the fire burns the combination of the dispersal from cattle the germination cues and another thing that cheatgrass does is it grows really fast in the spring because it's not a stress tolerator it just is able to grow faster basically there's kind of a trade-off between tolerating stress and growing really fast and so sagebrush just can't quite compete with its ability to capture spring moisture and so the combination of all those forces leads to a phenomenon where there's kind of an unstable plant community for a couple of years. There'll be different kinds of plants popping up for a couple of years. And then after like three or four years, it settles into just being like this monoculture of cheatgrass and it's a couple of forb kind of friends. And another component of ecosystem function is how flammable it is. Once it's just this bed of really flammable fine fuel, like any kind of, it gets, it just becomes really susceptible to fire. 
And so you have this thing called the grass fire cycle. And this isn't unique to cheatgrass. This is, this is basically a thing of that almost all grasses can kind of do. And there's a lot of native savanna ecosystems, for example, in South America, Africa, and in America that are naturally just burn all the time. And that's like a wonderful, beautiful thing. But then there's other ecosystems that, you know, are supposed to be a shrubland or a forest, and then they just turn into this invasive plant savanna, basically. And that's kind of what's happening. We're kind of changing from a desert scrubland into an annual grass savanna. Yeah, so it's just kind of like a, a big trend in, in the world today is how ecosystems are transforming from one thing to another based on the forces of global change. Yeah, you know, one thing that I hear a lot about with sagebrush ecosystems is sage grouse. And I'm wondering oh, yeah. if you could tell me why why we care so much about sage grouse and also what's kind of going on going on there with this relationship i'd love to hear a little bit more about how you see that from a kind of plant community ecologist kind of side this is an ecosystem that sustains like a couple thousand species of plants and animals and you know the sage grouse is one of them but there's there's many others that are endangered or will likely become critically endangered because they rely on sagebrush as habitat and if and it helps to kind of think of like sagebrush as like a forest and sagebrush is the tree in the forest if we take away all the trees in the forest all the animals that live in the trees are not going to be doing so hot so that's been the focus of a lot of conservation efforts is the sage grouse but it's also just to try to preserve the entire ecosystem and all these other you know wonderful species that live there one thing with the relationship between kind of grasslands and shrublands, which we would call kind of a sagebrush area in the West. You know, there's been different management agencies, different conversations happening regionally about encroachment of woody shrub type things into grasslands. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's also conversations about losing sagebrush, essential sagebrush habitat. Can you reconcile this discrepancy for us? Yeah, the big story with that, the thing that brings them all together is that climate change is causing these ecosystems to be hotter and drier. And so that is bad for all these native plants that have evolved to be in this certain climatic zone. And so they're just becoming less and less able to tolerate drought. Their reproduction and fitness is going down. And that's just providing opportunities for other plants to get in there that can withstand these new forces. You know, there's a big problem with encroachment of shrubs in the Great Plains and in New Mexico with, uh, with the mesquite. And like in the Great Plains, it's just like the Great Plains are supposed to burn every three years. And then we turned the whole thing into a cornfield. And so then the remaining areas, they're just not getting a lot of fire because there's not a lot of areas left. And so... You know, so there's a lot of research about that where it's just like, we just need to burn it like every three years, like it used to be. In the sagebrush ecosystem, you kind of have, or in the Wyoming big sagebrush ecosystem, I should say, you have kind of the opposite problem where the annual grasses, instead of having like a, a more long-lived resilient strategy against these new forces, they have more of a, what you call a ruderal strategy. So they just grow, like during that brief window of opportunity to get some moisture they grow really fast produce a bunch of seeds die 
And then they survive the long period of drought by just having seeds in the ground. And then when the moisture comes again, boom, they put out some seeds and that's what you call temporal storage. You survive the drought by just uh, having, just dying and like having your offspring come back in the, the next season. So it's all kind of the same. It's just changing strat. It's just a different strategy and that particular area works better now because of the changing climate and land use. Do you know if management action is is still tearing up? I mean, I can think of some places here in the La Salle's where I've seen sagebrush torn out and I'm wondering why. Oh yeah, there's there's just a lot of competing forces. There's some ideas thinking like, oh, well, sagebrush should be kind of like less dense and there should be more perennial grasses growing between. It should be more of like a kind of grassy shrubland, um, which makes sense because we overgrazed it really heavily back in the late 1800s. And it's probably just like never really recovered since then. And so that's that's probably what it used to look like was just like a lot more a lot more perennial grasses in there. And so people are trying to do things to thin it out. People are doing things like trying to create fuel breaks in the sagebrush to try to prevent it from burning. But then there's like the unintended consequences. If you just go and cut a big line in the sagebrush, you might just introduce a bunch of annual grasses. And so the fuel break becomes more flammable than it was before. But that's that's an area of ongoing research. People aren't really sure exactly the best way to, to save the sagebrush because it's definitely, a, a, it's a situation where even if it's not invaded by cheatgrass, if you just have like a wet year, that the native stuff that's already there will will kind of join the fuel together enough to to get a big fire in there. And it's definitely not doesn't really come back unless except for at higher elevations. But the low elevation stuff is definitely very much imperiled. So yeah, yeah, there's you know, you're you're touching on on kind of my next question thinking about restoration um you're saying the words imperiled which is making me think there aren't a lot of options for restoration kind of what what is the western scientific thinking now on on managing these like actively changing systems the restoration has not been a huge success of of sagebrush trying to actually do effective restoration in sagebrush is another area of active research that a lot of people are doing some really good, good stuff on. For a long time, the BLM and other management agencies would just kind of do like a one-off aerial seeding, which typically hasn't really worked that great, except for in higher elevation areas that are wetter. And so that's kind of like the million dollar question is how do you restore all these lower elevation areas, which is millions and millions of acres People are kind of developing new strategies like, okay, it's a lot more expensive to plant live containerized plants, but they have a higher probability of survival. So there's kind of like some strategies of planting clusters in ideal areas, finding little uh, climate refugia, little, little nooks where it's a little wetter and planting clusters of things to try to create a seed source. When sagebrush does burn, before it burns, each sagebrush shrub is a little island of fertility. So the soil underneath the sagebrush, the, the individual shrub has like way more nitrogen and phosphorus and carbon. The soil is like actually just like has a totally different structure. And then in between, it's kind of just like this clay with uh, 
very beautiful soil crust on top of it. After a fire, those little islands of fertility actually, you know, they're still really fertile. So if you go in and restore stuff, plant stuff where those little little fertile islands are, a lot bigger chance of, of getting things to take hold. And so I think that's kind of my professional opinion is it's just more important to keep doing good science and hopefully people will start to figure out that we got to like stop what we're doing like as soon as possible. Adam, this has been really interesting to learn all about this work. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.